And I was shocked. I was like, four years. I was kind of hoping to see like four months, right? Like, so this, they, it's like, four, it can be, you know, anywhere from four to really 12 years, like this sort of transition period. So it can be a really long time for women to go through hormone fluctuations and symptoms and um, just like not really kind of knowing what's going on. The midlife and menopause is a period that historically has not received much medical and cultural attention. Often women have been erased from media and health research in this time period, and it feels taboo to talk about it. So this can make it even harder to navigate the changes we experience in our body, both physically and emotionally, and make midlife a time that can exacerbate or trigger poor body image and a poor relationship with food. So you are listening to the Food and Life Freedom Podcast. I'm your host, Emma Townsend, a UK registered dietitian and a certified intuitive eating counsellor. I support you to move away from lifelong dieting and feeling stressed with food to develop a positive relationship with food and connection with your body. And as always, a reminder that we are all unique. So please use this as an opportunity to learn and explore. But if something does not sit with you, then it's not meant for your unique self. And if you have any health concerns, please do seek the personalized support you deserve from a registered healthcare provider. And just a note as well that this episode today is focused on the experience of cis women going through midlife and menopause. And we do acknowledge that other genders, so anyone who was assigned female at birth can go through the menopause. But we're just not diving into the additional layers that may be experienced by some people today, but we do acknowledge they exist. So today's guest is Sherry Pratt. Sherry is a certified coach and trained intuitive eating counsellor. She left an accomplished and successful 25-year career as an IT professional and corporate executive to start her own health coaching business. Her passion is helping women in midlife break free from yo-yo dieting and live comfortably in their bodies without feeling like they're giving up on themselves or their health. When she's not helping women reach their health goals, you can find her parenting two teenage sons behind the wheel of a tractor, helping her husband out on their grain farm, tending her rather large vegetable garden, staying active, playing pickleball and curling with, within her local community, or just relaxing with a glass of wine and a good book. So here is today's episode. So I'm joined today by Sherry Pratt. Sherry, a huge welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Uh, you're very welcome. I'm really looking forward to diving into this episode today on taking a non-diet approach to our health, specifically during midlife and menopause. But before we do get started, Sherry, I'd love to just learn a little bit more about you and how you became interested in supporting people with a non-diet approach, because I know your background was uh, very different before a, a career change, it sounds like, and also specifically during this midlife and menopause period too. Ah, sure. So, you know, my story, you know, is probably somewhat familiar. Um, I feel like it's pretty common for people who sort of get into this space, health and wellness, particularly to have come to it from a place of their own issues. And that's so that's certainly true for me. Um, you know, the short version, I definitely struggled with food uh, and an eating disorder for about 10 years. And intuitive eating is ultimately what led to my recovery. 
Um, yeah, the slightly longer version. So it, it kind of all began with uh, separation and divorce in my late 30s. And so just the stress and, you know, the emotional turmoil of that divorce, um, it led to unintentional weight loss at the time. But that weight loss also garnered me a lot of compliments and attention, you know, as it's want to do in society. Yeah. And, you know, given where I was emotionally with my self-confidence and my sort of trampled self-esteem, that felt really good, um, which makes yeah. sense, right? And so I think my self-worth and my identity sort of got tied up in, in being a thinner version of myself. Um, of course, as, you know, life stabilized and I got through the divorce and I started to, you know, regain the weight as we are all want to do because we know um, our bodies have a, a natural set point and I was, I was below mine. Um, but I started to panic, right? And it just sort of this 10-year cycle of yo-yo dieting kind of ensued as I tried to battle to stay at this lower weight um, that just wasn't natural for me. Um, so, yes. Um, and then, you know, as, you know, I, I did, I believed that I was pursuing health, right? But in truth, I was really pursuing, you know, that self-acceptance and social status yeah. that sort of comes with being in a smaller body. Um, and then throughout that process, I, I did make a career change, as, as, as you noted. Um, and I became a health coach. I learned about coaching and I was, coaching was very appealing to me, um, particularly from the sense that health coaching is less about um, telling people what to do. And it's more about helping people do what they already know they should be doing. So in my own head, it was perfect. It was like, well, I know I shouldn't be um, eating these particular foods or I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't be feeling so crazy around food. So it must be a behavior thing. Um, so I'll fix myself and then I'll help other people, right? That's often how we, we come to these things. So yes, um, I made a career switch and decided to, to jump into health coaching, uh, which was fantastic. I, I mean, I love, and I still love health coaching. But um, as with, you know, many professions in with the medical, medical sort of establishment or just health and wellness in general, um, there is a lot of bias towards thin equals healthy, right? And so I definitely got yeah. that in my health coaching um, training as well. So I started out health coaching very much in the dieting mindset very much in, you know, steeped in diet culture that yes, weight loss is probably a good thing. And it's something we should be striving for. Um, and so earlier in my career, in my health coaching career, um, I took a, a job with um, a company that was promoting the keto diet. And the keto diet was actually one of all my years of dieting that I hadn't really tried out myself. <laughs> it, and so I jumped headlong into that feeling like, you know, if I was going to coach people on this, it's something I should have also experienced myself. And so, you know, as with most diets, it went predictably well at first, things were kind of going along fantastic, um, until eventually that cycle of, you know, restriction and deprivation caught up and just pulled me back into that binge eating and, and continued to make my, disor my disordered eating worse and worse. Mm -hmm. um, this time, though, I mean, in, in somewhat of a good way, I saw that my clients were experiencing similar things, not necessarily full on, full, you know, full on eating disorders by any stretch. But, you know, I heard the history of, you know, this was a repeat behavior. I heard, you know, that they'd been trying to lose weight for so many years. Um, and that even when they lost weight, it was like never enough, right? Like I'd have clients that were yeah. super successful, but they were still never happy ultimately, right? 
And then, you know, so it didn't bring joy and it, it brought on a preoccupation with food and it brought distress around social situations. And then this fear of weight regain. And I finally came to my senses and I realized it's not just me. I'm not the only one here. Um, and, and I just kind of came to a point that I was like, you know what, this, this doesn't make sense. This isn't worth it. Um, I realized that, you know, my mental and emotional health were far more important than the number on the scale. And so I walked away from diets and I discovered intuitive eating and sort of a non-diet lifestyle. Um, and that is, it's been a game changer for me. And it's sort of now how I practice all of my health coaching going forward. And it's been, yeah, it's just been, it's just been such a great transformation. Wow. And I'm sorry you had to go through all of that as well, though, before learning that it's not working. And I'm sure a lot of listeners relate to that. It's such a process and learning like all these, trying all these different things to then realize something isn't working now because that information saying that we should diet, that we should be smaller and that makes us more worthy and valuable is just so much more abundant and mm. constantly in our heads, constantly. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's the norm, right? It really, it does take yeah. pushing against that norm to kind of start to come to a different conclusion. Yeah. And unfortunately that often means for so many people just hitting that, that diet bottom. I know in like the intuitive eating book, it's, it's called diet bottom where I just can't do this anymore. That, yes. that rock bottom place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Something that stuck out at me, um, or just like maybe made me think of it in this way, when you mentioned like health coaching and not really telling people what to do, it's just supporting them to do, um, I guess maybe what they already know, just thinking yeah. like all the messages in our world, like tell people that they should be doing something. And there's like a lot of shoulds. Like I want to eat maybe a specific, like I feel like something, but I should eat this or mm. I feel like resting, but I should be moving. So we, we can lose touch with our own intuition as well. That's a part of intuitive eating, connecting back. But often we can maybe to some extent, like know what feels best but not trust it and it's all of yeah. these shoulds and finding that trust again and letting go of the shoulds uh is a probably something that's so helpful being a health coach in the intuitive eating space as well it is very much so and that's where um, but again like you said it's not sort of our natural place like we're very much from a position of you know being told what to do or you know in particularly with health like here are the things you should be doing um yeah. but yes and that's where I do find intuitive eating as the, the framework, excuse me, <laughs> it really helps us reconnect with our bodies, right? And redevelop that trust. And so that's so helpful to apply not just to food and body, but then other aspects of health and start to evaluate, is this particular recommendation really the best for me? And to really get in touch with what does my body need? Definitely. Yeah. And it's not just eating, is it? It goes so much, so much oh, deeper yeah. when we learn to reconnect with our body to support our eating. We're also supporting things like our emotions because we're learning to connect with our emotions. We're learning to support our self-care because we're learning what our body needs. It's so lovely, like how far it expands throughout our life. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So moving, I guess, towards the, the topic or the focus that we're going to speak about in terms of um, in terms of intuitive eating and where we're supporting people is the midlife and, and menopause. Mm -hmm. I'd love to just hear a bit more about maybe generally, like what do we mean when we say midlife and menopause? 
and what changes might people or women go through during this time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and it, you know, really helpful to kind of set the stage for the conversation. Um, mm. So when I talk about midlife, I mean, I think that's sort of just that age range, you know, between like 45 to 65, right? Like that really, that's sort of midpoint in life. But when it comes to, which is often the time we're going through menopause, um, and so yeah, just maybe a few definitions or terms um, around menopause, because ironically, it's not something that we learn as much about as we do some other things, some other phases of life, right? So menopause, you know, from a definition, technical perspective, it's really just um, when we, there are no more follicles in our ovaries, and we basically stop ovulating, right? So that's sort of the medical side of it. Um, So we stop having a a menstrual period. But it can be helpful to kind of think of menopause on a bit like a timeline. So at one end of the timeline, you have your sort of reproductive years where you're ovulating regularly. You sort of starts with that first ovulation. And then we end with that last ovulation, what we call like sort of that final menstrual period. Interestingly, menopause is actually not even officially diagnosed until 12 months following that final menstrual period. So a woman is considered to be in menopause 12 months after her very last period. And there's really no other way to test for menopause. We can't like test hormones necessarily. It's really this like time thing. Um, and then you get lots of different terms. So we sort of have this transition period, sometimes called the menopause transition, sometimes called premenopause or perimenopause. And that's really that sort of transition period from when you go from sort of having a regular hormone cycle, regular ovulatory cycle to having this like erratic period when your your ovaries are starting to behave a little erratically. Maybe sometimes you're ovulating, sometimes you aren't. There's a, lots of fluctuations in hormones. And that's really when we talk about menopause is often what we're referring to. That's where that time period during which a lot of the symptoms tend to occur. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of like the menopause side of things or some definitions. What's interesting too, actually, what I, I remember reading this and, and being quite shocked. So there's sort of the early phase of the transition when, you know, your cycle's just starting to change a little bit. It might be lengthening a little bit. You might notice some symptoms. You might not. And then there's sort of the last phase, which is usually sort of the last year, one to three years, right before you're likely to stop menstruating. And and during that time, that's when you'll start to see skipping periods. And there was a, a statistic that came up that was like, when you start skipping two months in a row, like you've missed two periods in a row, then there's a 95% chance that your like final menstrual period will be within the next four years. And I was shocked. I was like, four years? I was kind of hoping to see like four months, right? <laughs> like, So this, like, it's like, four, it can be, you know, anywhere from four to really 12 years, like this sort of transition period. So it can be a really long time for women to go through hormone fluctuations and symptoms and um, just like, not really kind of knowing what's going on. Yeah, that is a a really long time actually. And it's also just to maybe not have so much awareness of our own body. Like we've, uh, for, well, for a lot of people, we've developed this understanding of how our body works in, in that sense, like hormonally, our cycle, and then to, for up to four years, I guess, being all over the place. 
not knowing how our hormones are affecting us at certain times of the month or not knowing when our menstrual cycle might appear that's that sounds like a challenge in itself yeah absolutely it is um and then all the symptoms that come along with that, right? So we, the, really a lot of the symptoms come from these this fluctuation of hormones. A lot of them get attributed to the fact that, you know, estrogen is really dropping. Um, although it is more than just estrogen that's sort of peaking in that, you know, having peaks and troughs. Um, yeah. And the symptoms then that sort of come along with, with all this lovely change that's going on in our bodies, um, I mean, obviously be things like, you know, seeing changes in our menstrual cycles and patterns. Um, you might experience more and heavy irregular or irregular periods. It's not uncommon to sort of have really heavy bleeding at certain times in, in those in during that range. Um, of course, hot flushes and night sweats are pretty commonly associated um, and experienced by a, a good chunk of women up to 75% of women will experience that some will be quite extreme and fortunately some not so much um, sleep disturbance is also really common so just you know having poor sleep quality the night sweats of course impact that too because if you wake up in the middle of the night sort of drenched and chilled and have to like change your bed sheets then that's obviously yeah. going to be disrupting your sleep um, a lot of other changes or sorry, symptoms just around sort of your, your feeling like your mental cognition, right? Like a little bit more brain fog, just changes in mood, um, mood swings, sort of feeling more angry. There's a term called sort of meno rage, um, more sadness. Like, and that's what I noticed myself too, a little more just feeling, you know, not clinically depressed by any stretch, but just more, you know, blue, a little more sad. Um, yeah. And I remember sort of commenting to my to my sister, like, I feel like my mood swings are far more variable now than they were when I was like going through puberty, which is, or even pregnancy, which yeah. is often other times when we see those hormone changes or just mood changes as a result of hormone fluctuations. Um, so those are, you know, sort of a lot of symptoms. There's, I mean, there's lots more. And then there's all the symptoms sort of related to with your actual, you know, sort of reproduction system itself. Um, so we'll see, you know, a decrease in sex drive or a decrease in libido. Um, sometimes as a result of changes, we have more um, estrogen really helps to keep our skin soft and to keep a lot of moisture. So we start to have dryness everywhere. Like our skin dries out, our hair dries out. Um, all of our our our, our vagina or our, our vagina dries out, right? So that can that, that can reduce desire. It can lead to increased pain with sex. So there's all sorts of lovely things that go on um, that way with your uh, reproductive system. So yeah, just a, like a wonderful list of symptoms that you have to look forward to as you approach menopause. So I think sometimes it helps to helps to, um, you know, keep in mind that, A, there's a lot going on, but try and be as lighthearted as you can be about some of this stuff. Yeah. We don't hear enough about this, definitely. We don't hear enough about what people uh, might experience to be just aware of it even, like, even if we can't, can, we can't control these symptoms completely, right. but there's things we can maybe put in place or just the awareness of my mood has been all over the place and it's not because I'm broken. There's not because there's something wrong with me. This is why. And then we can often have more compassion towards ourselves, which can then help with our emotional support as well. So we don't end up in a bit of a bit of a, a cycle with that. So it's really important to 
to hear more about it in different places. So it's really nice that yes. you're speaking about it. Yes. Um, and just all the the layers involved that you mentioned, I guess when we do hear about it, I know the things that I've mainly heard, it's like having hot flashes, uh, especially maybe at nighttime and that, that affecting maybe sleep and mood changes, things like that. But just the the challenges that we then experience in like all these different parts of life, that's certainly something that I don't hear so much in just general conversation or media. It's very mm-hmm. focused on, oh, this will happen. It'll be a bit annoying. Mm-hmm. But this awareness that that half the population at least or more than half the population maybe even go through these changes that have a huge impact on so many parts of their life is, is so important. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's where it's really important that we start to talk about this stuff more. Um, that, it, you know, I think it is becoming um, less of a taboo subject. Um, but it's, it was even interesting. I was out with a group of friends and, you know, there was some, there was, you know, probably a 10 year age difference, which isn't that much. But I noticed when I brought up the subject that the the ones at the, the, the upper end, you could see the discomfort a little more, right? <laughs> like we shouldn't be talking about this at the t- end, not like we were getting into, you know, a ton of detail, but just even the subject of menopause at the dinner table um, was like, oh, we shouldn't talk about that. And I was like, well, why not? Right? Like the reality is we're, you know, yeah. the women at this table are all going to go through it. So yeah, that's interesting. The I guess the differences maybe, well, at least in in that group or maybe that part of the world as well. I'm sure it changes, but just the differences that we notice maybe in generations and what we're more open about talking about now, which is is lovely that that's changing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, with all of these layers that I guess the the hormone changes and menopause can impact for women and then the flow on effect to the rest of their life how is it that it can maybe relate with uh people's relationship with their own body and then maybe even extended from that their relationship with food yeah so I think there's a you know sort of maybe a couple things here first you know and foremost is probably that association at least in in some cultures in North American or Western cultures more so um of that association with aging, right? And sort of like you're now not, you know, in your reproductive years anymore. And, and this is much less true than it used to be, but still women were seen as sort of, you know, not as as young and fertile and all that good stuff anymore, right? So there's definitely the association with, with, with aging and then, you know, ageism is a thing like so many of the other isms in our culture. So that's a definitely a piece of it. Um, you know, and again, I do see that changing, you know, I, I suspect it's, you know, far less for my generation now compared to maybe my mother and grandmothers for sure. Um, you know, we are seeing shifts, but, but I still think that we have a ways to go. So, um, you know, particular media and again, back to beauty standards and body standards and all that stuff. And like I said, it's getting better, but I know I, I, this sort of example stuck out to me and it was actually only upon reflection that I noticed it, but um, I was watching the TV series Andor, which is like a Star Wars spinoff with my husband and my son. And um, there was a a scene in which there was a a woman who um, she looked like, you know, not a day over 40, right? She was, you know, still had, you know, glowing flawless skin. She was very beautiful. 
And she was referencing that she'd gone to high school with this, you know, other character, this friend of hers. And this high school friend was like full gray, wrinkle, like easily like closer to 60 than 40 for sure. And I thought, "Mm, I'm not sure that they were in high school. You know, I'm not really sure. I couldn't have made the leap that they were in high school together because it just kind of shows that, you know, women in media and TV shows, we don't see a lot of aging women to the same extent that we see aging men. Um, So I think that's something that comes up for us in midlife. Um, And then I think the other piece is just, you know, again, midlife is often marked by a lot of transitions. So if we've had our family, our kids are, you know, certainly more independent, if not like leaving the house, you know, getting to that empty nest, that's certainly sort of the position I'm in right now. My, both my sons are just, you know, off to university. Um, You find, you know, life is changing. You might find you have more time on your hands. You might find that your career is peaking and it might be more demanding or it might be less demanding. You might be starting to contemplate retirement. You might be starting to contemplate, you know, maybe your kids are a little bit older and you're potentially becoming a grandparent. Like just there's so much change happening at this time. And, you know, because we are, we have living so much longer, we have these longer lifespans. It's also a sort of that midpoint in which it's like, wow, you know, for me, I, I looked, I, you know, I still hope to have, you know, 30, 40 more years of life. And that's a long time. Yeah. And then you start to sort of reflect on well, what do I want to do with that time? Um, so it can be a period of change and a period of reflection. And all these things kind of come together um, for for women and just, yeah. Definitely. That's the, the intersection with often. <laughs> it's different for everyone. Um, with where they're at at that point in their life but the intersection with all of these physical and hormonal changes that we're going through that impact maybe our emotional capacity and our stress our sleep all these things that have these really wide-ranging impacts in our life coupled with a time that people are often going through other big changes children leaving maybe getting close to retirement and all of that can for a lot of people, I'm sure make them feel a bit lost even, or Absolutely. I wonder, do you notice um, maybe when people's focus and attention has been like taken up with certain things like maybe taken up with their children, taken up with, with work, and then that's gone. I wonder how much space that leaves to then focus on the body as well. It can be for sure, you know, for some um, that, yeah, there's an absence. So you fill that absence with something. I think also in other cases, it, you were focusing on your body and now you have even more time to focus on your body and your food, right? It could be that too. Um, And, or just, I think the other aspect too is, is an attempt to control, right? So again, maybe other areas of your life feel like less in control or are changing. And, you know, I know I can control my body, or at least I felt like I can, we think we can control our body, right? We have this belief that I can, I can control these things. And so there becomes more focus on um, a desire to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And that is one of the things that we find kind of with dieting in general, isn't it? It can, for some people show up at times when things do feel out of control and it gives right. us a feeling that we're in control. And what we know from people's experiences from research is that it actually doesn't lead to long-term control. <laughs> Our body's going yes. to fight back against it, but it feels like we are. 
especially if we're maybe not really sure of exactly what to eat without following some kind of guidance or we, we don't have that trust, it's going to feel like more control than, than kind of blindly trying to navigate food. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in particular, if you if you aren't associating some of these symptoms with menopause back to like, you know, are you, are you how well informed are you, right? Yeah, and with the lack of conversation that we've historically had, uh, that's yeah. that's quite common. I'm sure that we we aren't aware or maybe just not supported as well. Yeah, precisely, precisely. Yeah. Do you do you often notice that at this time of life, like food and body image um, concerns or food, a poor relationship with food, poor body image? kind of shows up for the first time do these events and the the changes that bodies are going through seem to trigger this or does it usually feel more like someone's already been struggling and then it's this exacerbation or more space for that struggle mm-hmm. yeah I, I I would observe I have observed both I would say I think you know for those that have struggled with weight and body image and or been really heavily influenced by diet culture their entire life then you know yes as you say this is just a period of exacerbation right yeah um particularly because you know one of the symptoms i i didn't necessarily mention um is is sort of the weight gain and the weight gain is is actually more age related than menopause related and that's because um you know our muscle mass peaks around age 30 right and then from age 30 onward, for, this is true for everybody, you know, men, women, athletes, everybody, that muscle mass decreases naturally with age. Yeah. The change for women, though, is that there is sort of a, a, um, a period of time during which that muscle mass accelerates, that loss accelerates. So instead of being sort of a nice steady decline over time, what we see during menopause is a huge drop. And then it sort of catches up. So we have a period of time during which we're losing more muscle mass. Um, and of course, the loss of muscle also leads to a decrease in insulin sensitivity. That coupled with other changes um, can lead to some weight gain. And also, even if it's not weight gain, it, it can be sort of a redistribution of the weight. And so we notice that women after menopause tend to have more body fat and they tend to carry that more around their middles. So sometimes our clothes can fit differently, even though maybe um, the weight isn't necessarily different, our clothes can fit differently. And so that of course brings up even more, you know, struggles with anybody who's already feeling that with challenged with their body image. Um, that can happen as well. So we definitely see that. And then those same changes for women perhaps who haven't had struggling with food or body, but now all of a sudden experience it, it's kind of like the first time. It's like now, what, you know, what's going on? I never worried about this um, or it was never an issue for me. And now all of a sudden it, it is an issue for me. So, so I definitely see both happening. Um, on the other hand, though, I also, you know, on the good news front, I also see a little bit of the opposite happening in the sense that, you know, sort of the, the, the truism or whatever that, you know, with age comes wisdom. And, you know, having lived 50-ish more or more years, women are really, they're becoming more comfortable with who they are. 
So it's sort of also one of the great hallmarks of sort of going through menopause. It's like you start to really just get comfortable with who you are and your values and your self-worth. And so I've also seen this be a time for some women where they're just like, you know what, I, I recognize that this isn't what's important anymore. This doesn't matter. Um, I am who I am and I, you know, I have this body and it's all good. And I'm, and there are so many more important things to me and they've actually are able to let go of some of those previous struggles around food and body. So that's, that's, I think, encouraging too. That's really lovely to hear as well. And I know like historically in our society, older women, and I, I guess it's often this after menopause phase, isn't it? Because we're no longer fertile, we're no longer young. Older women are just erased from kind of everywhere, like the media and things, or mm -hmm. um, if they are, uh, if there is a media story around them or they're, they're in you know, our TV shows, movies, it is often still a certain body type that represents a younger woman. They're there yes. in the media because they have the body of a 20 year old um, rather than then presenting as an older woman and, and what we go through. But yeah, it's really, it is really lovely to hear that for some women, it can be maybe a, a release from the pressures. I wonder yeah. if it's like, well, now I'm a raise, I'm not going to fit these ideals of a 20 year old woman. So right. let go. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And like, like I said, it's not, it is, it's nice to kind of come to that, that conclusion that finally, you know what, I don't need to live up to other people's standards anymore. What's important is my, my own. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder for the, the women who, who do struggle during that time. So either it comes up for the first time, or maybe it's been something that's, that's exacerbated or they've already experienced, um, there's this such a sense in our culture that like bodies should never change throughout life. Mm, and we know, yeah. as you just explained really nicely before the, the natural changes that bodies go through because of our physiology, because we're human, because of the hormone changes, um, redistribution of weight, insulin changes, all of these natural things that are supposed to happen. But yeah. even now, like within the healthcare space, it's very focused. I hear all the time from people, their doctors told them, oh, like now you need to really watch your weight. You should be trying to lose weight. You should be making sure it doesn't go up because you're, you know, a risky time where your weight's going to go up. Mm -hmm. It's just not normalized at all that bodies do actually change during this phase of our life. And women are still in a lot of ways expected to have like the body that they had in their 20s or 30s, even yes. though being human means that there's changes that happen. I know, I know, it's crazy. Um, just yes, that that recognition of not changing, and I wish we, I wish that we saw more of that. But and even, I was uh, this. This isn't so much acceptance of change. This is acceptance of change across even all age ranges. So um, I was chatting with my best friend, and her kids go to a private school, and her daughter was graduating from this private school. And one of the activities they had sort of as part of their graduation was to more of a, a joke or a laugh to put on their uniform that they wore when they sort of started the high school range, right? So they would put on their, you know, clothes, which would clearly be to ideally be too small because our bodies have changed ideally. and grown a lot <laughs> in those puberty years. And, you know, what struck me is, of course, you would expect for the men, you know, the boys, they would try and put on these pants and they would be almost like shorts or capri, you know, like the boys couldn't fit at all. And yet there was less of it. I felt like um, more of an expectation that the girls clothes might still fit, yeah. you know, and, and it just kind of, 
it broke my heart. And I thought, oh, for all those girls for which that wasn't true, how painful and sort of that first initiation into this, this belief that our bodies shouldn't change over time. Yeah, it was really, yeah. Uh, I, and, and again, I think sometimes we just don't think about the repercussions of these types of traditions, if you will, right? Yeah. And if our culture didn't moralize weight, if weight was just a neutral thing and bodies changing were neutral, then that would be a neutral activity to see, yeah. oh, look how much I've changed. But right. even if that's even if that is the intention from the school, the the students graduating are living in this diet culture where they've had messages that are the opposite of that messages that their their body shouldn't change, it should be as small as possible. So it's going to be hard for at least a lot of people to to take that in a supportive way. I'm sure that could really backfire for a lot of people. Yeah. And that was my fear. It was sort of like, ooh, you know, like again, with with more when we start to consider the broader picture and more perspectives, we can sort of recognize that yeah, maybe what would what the potential of some of these activities might be like the harm that they, that might come with them. Yeah. From such a young age, we're already taught our body shouldn't change. Shouldn't and then we change. Get to, <laughs> and then we get to this place in our life when there's a lot of change, uh, a lot of change in our body and, and other things potentially that are going on around as well. And, and it's not just um, like physically what we look like, which can lead to a, a lot of distress when, especially we're getting comments um, mm-hmm. about our body or the healthcare providers telling us we need to be careful but just in how we feel as well when, when our emotions maybe are feeling a bit different, uh, our body's physically feeling a bit different as well, that can make it really hard to navigate to. So hard. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What can we do maybe for someone who's um, approaching midlife um, and becoming aware of what they might start to experience what what's some maybe like tips or support that can be helpful to navigate body image and relationship with food and body during that time Mm -hmm. I think you know from a preparation perspective I think there's sort of three things that are really important and these can start even in your early 40s because that's when menopause symptoms can start Um, the sort of average age for menopause to hit is actually 51 but given that it's, you know, a, potentially a decade long process, um, we can start to see symptoms coming up in our forties. And I, so I think, yeah. you know, three things just from a preparation perspective is just to, you know, start by educating yourself and getting informed, right? Because so often when we know what to expect, when it starts to happen, we're less distressed by it. But when all of a sudden we have this weird symptom that we don't know what it's from, it can cause more anxiety or be more concerning. Um, so just like, you know, if you were pregnant, you would, you know, read the what to expect when you're expecting. I think it's really important um, to read books. I'm a book reader, so I tend to go to books as my go-to. Um, but there, you know, with with all of more modern technology, there are other ways now, you know, articles on the internet, um, reputable ones, of course, um, yeah. podcasts. Those are really great sources. So to educate yourself, um, the book that I really like on on the topic of menopause is called the menopause manifesto and it was written by uh, uh, dr jen gunter she's an obgyn um so it's it's a very thorough very readable still it's it's got some medical terminology but it's still very readable um super helpful so i like that quite a bit so again 
first and foremost, like just get it, get informed, right? The second thing is to talk to your friends, like to, again, not make this subject taboo, um, because this is really going to help you realize that you're, you're not alone. So, you know, at girls night, or, or in front of the men too, because they need to know in many ways what's going on. Um, just start to have these conversations and, and again, know that um, what's, what's going on. And then that way can also help you assess what, you know, is what I'm experiencing normal or abnormal? And should I be going to see my practitioner because maybe it's outside of the norm? Or, you know, am I just, is this sort of common? Even if and even if it is common, I still think it's important to see your practitioner if the symptoms are truly problematic for you. If they're starting to interfere with life, um, you know, to go and, and find a practitioner or see your practitioner. Um, but another piece can be to find a, find a practitioner that's experienced with menopause because I heard this, you know, rather startling statistic that something like 70% of sort of like primary care providers aren't comfortable, don't feel adequately um, knowledgeable about menopause, which mm -hmm. is rather concerning and not terribly surprising given that, you know, the doctors have to learn so much, medical practitioners have yeah. to learn so much. Um, and I don't know about like the UK or other parts of the world, but I know in Canada, like we don't have a, you know, the typical woman would only have an OBGYN during pregnancy. After that, we don't. We just go to our regular, you know, general practitioners. And so the fact that they may not be comfortable or may not have a lot of knowledge um, yeah. can be concerning. So the North American Menopause Society does have a um, listing of practitioners. So you can go find one, which is which is helpful. So that's something else that I to suggest. So, you know, really knowing that, you know, this is normal and you're not alone goes a long way. Um, but the last thing to do really in terms of preparing yourself is to start, really start to like double down on that self-care and just start to really be yeah. more mindful of the things that um, you need to be doing to take care of yourself. Um, so that I think is also really, really important in self-care, not just, you know, not just physical self-care, but you know, mental and emotional and just, you know, making sure that you're supporting yourself, um, surrounding yourself with supportive relationships, that you're finding, you know, fulfillment at work, that you're managing your stress, that, you know, maybe you're getting outside, whatever it is that you find that fills your cup, um, you know, journaling or spending time in nature or all those, you know, all those things that we talk about all the time um, to really start to inventory what's working for you and maybe what's not and where maybe you need to be investing a little more time. Yeah. That's lovely. And I think self-care is something that can really go out the window when we have busy lives. Mm -hmm. Or often I, I hear women feeling kind of selfish or guilty for prioritizing themselves. And I wonder if people at this um, coming up to, to midlife have gone through this place where some people have had children that have been their priority or work's been priority in all these different areas. And maybe they're starting to come to a place where they these things are less of their, their priority and it can be hard still navigating allowing I mean we should allow ourselves during those periods as well that's the first step and then also navigating allowing ourselves when we have less other priorities as well yeah but no that's absolutely true like so again back to that sort of transition you have mm -hmm. been focused on others focused on your career focused on so many other things and so all yeah. of a sudden yes putting yourself at the center of self-care can can be really uncomfortable feel really unnatural for a lot of people, for yeah. sure. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, yeah, such great advice. And I love the 
just getting educated and aware aware of what can happen and the conversation side of it is super important as well I know in lots of areas of women's health too we aren't so equipped to know what's normal and what's not normal because we're not really talking about it and at least not in in depth so we might be experiencing things that feel like they must it must be a concern and it's causing us a lot of stress without knowing that like a big percentage of other people experience the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and I agree, like in all areas of our life, like, you know, it's a, a little bit embarrassing, but not probably uncommon to admit that, like, I didn't even really understand my like hormone cycle, like just your natural ovulation cycle until I was, you know, into my mid forties when I actually spent a little more time truly understanding all the signs and symptoms. And it was kind of revelatory, actually. It was like, wow, you know, to sort of get in touch with those pieces of your body and to be able to see um, and really start to sense where you were in your hormone cycle. Um, And this was like, you know, well, well beyond when I'd had kids and everything. It was like, I feel like this is the stuff that we should be taught way earlier in our lives. Right. Because our bodies can tell us so much, which I think is, you know, phenomenal and fascinating. Um, when we're taught sort of what to look for. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure of everyone's experience, but I know mine, I didn't get any education around that at all during school. It wasn't anything that was touched on. Um, sex education was purely kind of in the intimate process. Yes. Uh, It wasn't focused on, on women's bodies. Um, or men's bodies either, for that matter, like from, from what I go yeah. to school. Um, but I think men's bodies are so different. Like they don't have this this yeah. 28 day or whatever, whatever your your cycle yeah. is, you know, between 28 and 31 or whatever the number is, right? Um, yeah. And it's also interesting to me that for the, the reason that women were left out of medical research for so long is because of that hormone cycle, because it had such a great influence potentially on, you know, the research and that was being done. And that's why for so many years, men who don't have this d- cycle um, were s- sort of subjects of experiments. So I thought that was really interesting too. And I learned that's that. So fascinating. Yeah. Left out to not affect the research, but actually that was the thing that needed researching. That was the thing that needed to be better understood because otherwise it's half the population at best that are included. Exactly. Precisely. Yeah. Well, uh, then I guess thinking about someone, maybe who's currently navigating midlife um, and menopause, maybe they've been through um, midlife and menopause already, but they have noticed changes in their body image and their relationship with food. What advice would you have someone for someone who's really struggling in that phase of their life? Mm-hmm. So, you know, first the foundation, I think for, for all the work that you're going to do with this, you know, at any time in life, but really even more now. So is to, to lean into self-compassion. Um, to really, there, you know, those three elements of self-compassion, they, they come together so well, the things we've been talking about, just like to start being kinder to ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to sort of recognize when we're holding ourselves to standards um, that maybe mm-hmm. aren't appropriate, when we're applying lots of judgment um, or inner criticism, to start to see that um, and to start to you know, we're, as women, we're so good at being nurturing and loving and caring for the others around us and to start to turn some of that attention to ourselves. Um, you know, that other aspect of, you know, that second element of self-compassion is that common humanity piece. So again, that I'm not alone piece. And so again, recognizing, you know, as we've said several times, this is something, this is a very natural thing for women to go to. It's something we're all going to go through. So again, remembering Mm -hmm. that 
And then that third element of self-compassion, that, that mindfulness piece or that, that recognition that, you know, change is constant, that the nature of impermanence. So again, yes, this is right now feels like a very difficult time, but it'll pass at some point, right? Like, so just remembering. Um, so all, I think all of those elements of self-compassion come together really nicely and can help serve as a foundation. Um, but self-compassion doesn't always come naturally for us. Um, so maybe, you know, digging into that a little bit, familiarizing yourself with that. Yeah, um, yeah that definitely to me is sort of a, a starting place, um, you know, particularly with food and body because the, it is such such a triggering space. It's such a, you know, a place where it can feel and you've dealt with it for so many years. Yeah. Um, so having that foundation is, is a place I'd like to start with. Um, you know, secondly, of course, though, is really to, you know, if you still, if you are still stuck, to opt out of that diet culture, right? And to really make peace with food by adopting intuitive eating. So, you know, many of your listeners may already be there, but if they aren't, that absolutely, uh, I think is a game changer to start to, you know, recognize um, the truth around how much or how very little control we actually do have over our body shape. We absolutely have lots of control over um, our, our behaviors and our actions, and we still want to be taking care of our health. Um, but intuitive eating is not in opposition with that in any way, shape, or form, right? Um, so, you know, if necessary, seek out the support of someone trained and certified like yourself or, or like myself to, to get that support to really start to adopt um, and become an intuitive eater. And then I think the last piece of the last piece of sort of how do you navigate this? How do you sort of overcome these challenges um, is, is a piece that I like, like to incorporate. And that's to start to embrace what I call sort of whole person health, right? So recognize that health goes far beyond diet and exercise, right? It's, it's not just your physical health, but it's your mental and emotional and social well-being. And these all are interrelated and they all contribute, right? So, you know, pay attention to like who you're spending your time with and, and that you have supportive relationships, that you are, you know, gaining fulfillment from the things that you do in your life. Um, you know, start to really explore like what lights you up and what's important to you. Um, and again, you know, yes, we want to be taking care of ourselves and we want to be doing things that make us feel good, but that doesn't necessarily mean looking a certain way or spending an inordinate amount of time on food and body or, or you know, diet and exercise. So kind of, yeah, that's sort of, yeah. And I love the focus on that you were kind of mentioning throughout there, like what is health to us? There's this yeah. huge focus on it being about what we look like and staying thin and the specific food that we're eating. But that's, that's not health. What we look like has nothing to do with our health. Firstly, it's natural human. <laughs> our body naturally does like have weight changes during menopause. So that's, that's a very healthy thing to go through, but also everyone's body's different. We can't tell how healthy someone is by what their body looks like and really separating our, these health ideals that we see um, in our culture that this is the image of health but that's not true at all so working on separating that as we're working on rejecting the diet mentality that you mentioned yes exactly absolutely and that's what's so helpful and that I, th I find is also what is helpful um to create that separation so it's when you start to see these truths when you start to understand um sort of what is natural 
it becomes easier to be like, oh, well, then I, I don't need to be doing these things. It's actually not helping me to do these things. I can I can let go of that. And I now have so much more time, energy, capacity, mental capacity to focus on these other things that really do matter to me. Yeah, yeah. And that's when I can be maybe the the light switch can happen when we realize all of these other things that we've been given up, giving up, and maybe we have to find them. It might be that we don't know what they are yet and we need to find them too to help our, our journey there. Yeah. And that's true too. And I mean, I think I experienced a little of that myself um, because yes, when you're so invested, when that takes up so much of your time, when, you know, food and, and, you know, dieting, exercising, they, they take up so much time that all of a sudden, yeah, you're all of a sudden like, well, what else do I do? <laughs> you know, I have all this, I have this, this time now and, and how do I want to spend it? And it can be a little challenging. Absolutely. Yeah. Sherry, these tips were so helpful. I really loved the the compassionate approach as well and that focus on and finding compassion for yourself, which is one of those really important first steps that we're we're not usually guided towards. So I really love that. Um, I would love to keep chatting. I'd like to feel like we could talk about this topic for so long. There's so much <laughs> that we could speak about. Um, you probably noticed how dark it's got on my end. We're in very different time zones. And I, I forgot to turn the light on in the room, knowing that we were entering dusk, <laughs> entering mm. that time. So it's got very dark <laughs> on my end. Um, but where if listeners do want to learn more from you because it sounds like you have lots and lots of, of knowledge and support you can offer where can they go to find more oh thank you um yeah so they can check out my website which is just sherrypratt.ca uh, in addition to that, if, if you do social media, which is not my favorite thing, but I definitely, um, you know, hang out there on, on occasion. Uh, I have an Instagram account. It's at Sherry Pratt underscore health coach. And then I also have a business Facebook page, which is Sherry Pratt health coaching. Um, in addition to that, I do have a special offer gift for your listeners. If they're interested, I have created, um, an undiet meal planning course. And I think I found this to be really important or helpful um, for women sort of navigating that transition from sort of being a dieter to being a non-dieter, an undieter, as I like to call it, um, because it can feel really scary or disconcerting to go from rigid rules and structure around food to all of a sudden intuitive eating means like I could eat whatever I want whenever I and not having structure can um can be challenging so through this course this isn't this isn't a meal plan because you know we absolutely aren't dieting we tend to associate a meal plan with a diet this is <laughs> teaching you the skills to just think ahead a little bit right to like to be planful in your approach because it can be so much more supportive and helpful particularly as an intuitive eater to have food on hand that you like. So the focus really is on, you know, thinking about the foods that you like, the foods that you enjoy, how foods make you feel. And yes, we talk a little bit about nutrition and sort of weave in a little bit of gentle nutrition in the course, but it's really about helping you make meal plan easier. Because as I like to say, you know, like, Yes, for, for us, food is fuel, but, you know, unlike a car that we maybe we only fuel up at the gas station once or twice a week, we have to eat like three times a day or more, right? We eat several times a day. And so meal planning can just help to make that process easier. Um, and so, yeah, if your listeners are interested, they can find probably the simplest way to, to get access to that course would just be to DM me on social media and just like DM me, you know, meal planning podcast, and I'll send them a link to this special offer. Lovely. 
that's, yeah, it is very helpful. I think that's one of the nuances of intuitive eating is that when people first learn about it, it seems like we have to let go of all structure and just live in the moment. And that can feel really scary, but actually bringing in some structure from a completely different mindset and intention to dieting is helpful because if we don't have the food available that we we want, it, it can be really um, hard to navigate eating, have food available, and then we're going to experience uncomfortable um, emotions and, and hunger cues. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, that's lovely. Thank you so much, Sherry. It's been really nice to speak with you today and, and learn a lot more from you. Thank you for sharing all of your knowledge. Oh, thank you, Emma. It's been a joy to get to chat with you today. And I, yeah, I hope this has been helpful for, for your listeners. It's been so lovely to share this episode with you today. I would love for you to visit today's guest with the links they shared. And for more support and information, including articles, free resources, online courses, and individualized support, you can visit my home on the internet at foodlifefreedom.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. And feel free to use the three dot symbol to share with anyone who may find this episode helpful. If you have a question or topic you would love to have covered on the podcast, I would love to hear from you.